I find myself, I have a bunch of topics that I want to talk about. I have a bunch of things I want to talk about. I really would like to soon uh, start talking more about prayer uh, and worship um, and what those two things bring uh, to the table when we gather together uh, as kingdom family. But I, I, I feel... I feel like I just, I can't get off um, talking about us as sons and daughters. I, I talked about it this weekend and I, I feel this need to just keep digging at us because I feel like if we set ourselves up for something, but we don't actually know who we are, I think it will be extremely disappointing. I think a lot of the ends of great revivals and great moves of God is because people walk in as orphans and they feel the spirit, but they don't really leave as sons. They don't actually leave his sons. And so I think we live in a moment instead of living in an actual movement because one, we don't understand we, who we are. And two, I believe our, our, our gospel is run through the filter of shame. And um, I, I wanna touch on the idea of, of shame, effort, and self-effort. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and go to Galatians 4. We're gonna... We're going to look at a kingdom family uh, uh, message tonight and kind of go uh, from there with that. Go to Galatians 4. Um, we're going to start in verse 21 through 31 and go from there. You think I'd already have it open, but Galatians 4, uh, 21 to 31. And if I'm reading out of the Passion Translation, if you're on your phone, um, and so we're going to go from there. It says, tell me, do you want to go back to strictly living by the law? Haven't you ever listened to what the law really says? Have you forgotten that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave girl and the other by the free woman? Ishmael, the son of the slave girl, was born of the natural realm. But Isaac, the son of the free woman, was born supernaturally by the spirit, a child of the promise of God. These two women and their sons express an allegory and become symbols of two covenants. The first covenant was born on Mount Sinai, birthing children into slavery, children born to Hagar. For Hagar represents the law given on Mount Sinai in Arabia. The Hagar metaphor corresponds to the earthly Jerusalem of today who are currently in bondage. In contrast, there is a heavenly Jerusalem above us, which is our true mother. Say mother. She is the free woman birthing children into freedom. For it is written, burst forth with gladness. Rejoice, O barren woman with no children. Break through with shouts of joy and jubilee, for you are about to give birth. The one who was once considered desolate and barren now has more children than the one who has a husband. Dear friends, just like Isaac, we're now the true children who inherit the kingdom promises. And just as the sons of the natural world at the time harassed the sons of the power of the Holy Spirit, so it is today. And what does the scripture tell us to do? Expel the slave mother with her son. The son of the slave woman will not be a true heir. For the true heir of promise is the son of the free woman. It is now so obvious we're not the children of the slave woman. We're the supernatural sons of the free woman, sons of grace. We are sons of the free woman, sons of grace. Obviously, when we read these scriptures, we know this is of both sonship and daughtership. Um, the, the story that 
uh, Paul is describing here is found in Genesis 21. If you want to go there, you can. I'm going to read the first nine verses so you understand exactly what's going on. Uh, this, is, this is the story of, of Isaac and this expelling of this slave woman. Genesis 21, 1 through 9 says, Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. She added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Hagar, in, oh, I think I missed it here. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I bore him a son in his old age. The child grew, verse 8, and was weaned. Say weaned. And on the day Isaac was weaned, focus on this now, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, bore to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for the woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son, Isaac. Isaac turns eight years old. And when Isaac's eight years old, he's weaned, weaned off his, off his mother's milk. And on the same day he's weaned, there's a great feast that happens. In that feast, Isaac's older half-brother, Ishmael, begins to mock him. When he begins to mock him, Mama Bear shows up and says, you tell that woman and her illegitimate child to get out of my house. And Abraham, realizing that if he couldn't make both wives happy, he needed to at least make one wife happy, kicked her out of the house. And this is the metaphor that he's talking about. Paul is using not only an allegory, but he's trying to show us the law of representation within this story. These two women represent two covenants. Hagar represents the old law. He says that Hagar represents the covenant made on Mount Sinai. This is the, the covenant made with Moses or, or the law. And that Sarah represents the law of grace. Sarah can be represented as being shown as Mount Zion. So Hagar represents Mount Sinai, where the law is given, and Sarah represents Mount Zion, where the law of grace is given. And Paul shows us the only option we can do when we mingle ourselves with the Mount Zion covenant and the Mount Sinai covenant, which is expulsion. The only thing to do when we mix the law of grace with the law of the old covenant is to expul is to tell it to leave our camp and to never come back. It's the only available option. Amen. Let's review these girls with their children. Sarah once again represents birthing children into freedom. Isaac, her son in this allegory, is a representation of children or offspring of freedom. They are children being birthed out of supernatural grace. Hagar, like we talked about, represents children being birthed into slavery. Children being birthed into slavery. And Ishmael is the first fruits of the old law, which is self-effort. 
Ishmael represents the first fruits of living by the law, which is self-effort, because the entire law is built off of what? Self-effort, right? So we, te- we see two, two women, two sons, representing two opposites of each other. Now, the question is, why did Abraham have two sons from two different women? It's because Abraham actually got tired of waiting on the promise of God. Abraham actually got tired of waiting on the promise of God. And what Paul is showing us is that when we refuse to allow the spirit to cultivate in us the promises that have been given, we will always lean into our own selves and self-effort to produce those things ourselves. We will always lean into our our own effort. I wrote that self-effort always mocks what is being birthed in the spirit. Self-effort always mocks what is being birthed in the spirit. We see the same thing happening right now in the church in the West. We can't seem to see enough churches become kingdom families because what's actually happening is churches are being built on complete self-effort. And what happens in those churches is when a small group of people finally decide that they do want to go after the deepness of the spirit, every other person in the building that has been brought in by self-effort begins to mock what is being done by the spirit begins to mock it. You can't go that long. You can't have service at four. You have to have your own building. You can't do it that way. You can't sing that way. You can't, you can't switch up how service is being done. And what happens is self-effort will always try to bring what is being done in the spirit back into submission. And we see it with churches all the time. And what happens when you begin to operate in the spirit, you'll see very fast who's there because of the spirit and who's there by self-effort. If you want to ever try it, you could leave the church building you were in and the denomination you were in and go to no denomination in a different building and watch how fast you see who's there by self-effort and who's there by the Spirit. It will be very revealing very fast. But when a house is cultivated through the process of the Spirit, even if those people or voices are actually sitting there when the house is actually cultivated by the slow pace of the spirit, what happens is when those accusing voices come, Sarah rises up. Sarah's rise up in the community and actually say, send the slave woman out with her son. They will not inherit what we do. It's a transitional process where you see Western churches being built on submission into self-effort and kingdom families sending out people who only desire self-effort. They're two very different things. The same goes for really any leader. There are people in our community that lead ministries here. They lead their own ministries. There's people that are involved in all different types of things. And what happens is, is that when you allow people, when you build your ministry, you build your house off of self-effort, you have to maintain everything that is produced everything that is produced and self, self-effort often always comes in the door when we feel like God's promises aren't moving fast enough. There's not enough there. Sarah's going, why aren't I pregnant? Why aren't I pregnant? Abraham and Sarah agree, well, let's have our own child. And Abraham, because of their anxiety of the weight, Abraham's the one forced to kick out a kid that he actually loves. If you read the story, Abraham laments over the fact of having to get rid of Ishmael. It's not fun to send out your own kid. But the reality is what, what the promise can inherit, self, self-effort can't. 
It's the reality of the kingdom. The hard part about these types of things is that when you begin to think of kingdom and promise versus self-effort in Western church, the issue is, is you start to begin to think generationally and you quit thinking about services and programs. And the issue is people come in the door and they're waiting for the next great service and they're waiting for the next great program and they're waiting for the lights and they're waiting for the show and they're waiting for the fog machines and they're waiting for the right youth group and the right conference and the right this and that because they're building themselves off of when is it gonna happen? When's it gonna start? When's it gonna start? Instead of simply waiting on the inheritance, waiting on it. And this is the hard part for a lot of people is the ability to actually wait and because of that, people are moving from church to church. People are losing value for church to church. And the next generation has no value for church at all. Our inability to come to a room every week, come to a prayer room every Monday, come to a service every Sunday and push and push and cultivate and cultivate always gets stopped because we have our own issues and we have our own things and it's not happening fast enough and self-effort's not producing it fast enough. And so the next generation is actually losing a value of waiting on the promise of God and being in the room. But what happens predominantly, sorry, my mouth is really dry tonight. So I'm gonna be drinking a lot of water. Sorry, Jess Paxton. I know it kind of drives you nuts, but I'm gonna be drinking a lot of water. Uh, <clears throat> she always hates my water breaks. She's like, you drink too much water when you preach, but whatever, it's fine. I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not, uh, I'm not, I'm not, yeah, I'm not hurt by that. No, but um, the reality though is if, if a group of people can actually gather together to wait on the promises of God, to wait and actually slowly build and cultivate what's, what's, what needs to be built, you will see a whole generation of young people, a whole generation of old people actually believe the only thing that truly matters and that is that I am as righteous as God and I am as loved as much as Jesus is because that is the message. I am as righteous as God and I am as loved as Jesus is. As much as the Father loves the Son, I am loved in the exact same way. <clears throat> and what's beautiful is when we begin to realize that we're loved, we lose all the self-effort that's in our own lives. We, when we realize we're loved, we start to lose effort to build our own things. We start to lose effort to build our own platforms. Our, our values are not find, found in our finances. Our values are not found in worldly things, but they're actually found in how loved we are. The same thing can be said for leaders. When you really begin to fall into beloved identity and righteousness, your actually values are not found in how many people are in your room. Your values are not found in how many people give and how much money that you bring in and call it favor. Your values are not found in creating some type of 10X growth pattern and going to different conferences and creating different marketing strategies to build yourself up. You lose all of that once you find love. And that's what we're committed to. I can promise you with all of my heart, the day that you see me outside of a Walmart, with, an, with a, an Easter egg shaped invitation to Be Love Sunrise service, and you see Brian outside of a Chick-fil-A dressed like a rabbit inviting people to service will be the day that you know we've both suffered a great concussion. <laughs> I promise you. You'll never see Brian flipping a thing saying, come to our 9 a.m. service. 
because marketing strategies are not what I'm here for. What I'm here for is helping build kingdom families that actually believe the true gospel, that believe that you are the beloved, that you are the chosen one, that Yahweh is actually obsessed with you, that he thinks about you every day, every night, all day, and all night, and he cares about your dreams. That is what we're here for. That is what's being built. That is, is a slow roll that takes time, but it is worth it all when your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren get to run on roads that you had to pave. It's thinking transgenerationally. Uh, Paul continues the metaphor that he's using with Sarah and Hagar uh, by representing them as two different Jerusalems. One is an earthly Jerusalem and the other is a heavenly Jerusalem. Look at, at verse 26 again in Galatians 4. In contrast, there is a heavenly Jerusalem above us, which is our true mother. Say mother again. She is the free woman birthing children into freedom. We're going to stop there. New Jerusalem can be seen, uh, depending on which portion of Scripture you're reading, also as Mount Zion. So we have this old Jerusalem built off the law, which is built off of Mount Sinai. And we have a new Jerusalem built off a new mountain, which is Mount Zion. And it's built off the covenant of grace. Um, I want us to look at, because I think the problem when we read Scriptures like this is how our minds process words how our minds process things because of maybe different ways that we've been taught. In this verse, I want us to look at one specific section. In contrast, it says, there is a heavenly Jerusalem above us. I want us to look at the word above. Because when we think of the word above, we have to think correctly. If not, will push off this portion of scripture for another season of life. I, I've talked about this before, and it's, it's just the reality. We're going to have to talk about eschatology for a minute, as much as some may not like that, but it's just the reality of it. I have found often that the Western church is obsessed with the idea of dying. The Western church is ready to die so that they can go to heaven. They have no real desire predominantly to live. Me and Josh Paxson were laughing at, at just some of the old gospel tunes, the good ones and the bad ones. And he said, I was listening and one came on this past weekend. The song's called, I'm Homesick. I'm Homesick. Just basically, if I could sum up the song, it's, Lord, either you come or kill me now. But I can't live another day with these gas prices. Either you come or kill me now. Nothing can change this country but Trump or the rapture, and I've got to go. A couple people clapped in the back. Glory to God. That's a, that's a new book I'm writing called Trump and the Rapture. I'll sell 10 million copies of that book in a week. <laughs> but the Western church is obsessed with death because we have a complete lack of our own identity, and so our only escape from the crap that's going on in the world is to actually not be here anymore. And what religion's uh, greatest tool is, is to take a bad theology and push it just a little bit further. To take a bad theology and take it one step further. And so often what we've done when we read scripture, because we think predominantly all of heaven is only accessible after we die, when we read scriptures like there's a heavenly Jerusalem above us, our brain automatically goes to, oh, that's for later. 
Oh, there's a heavenly Jerusalem above us. Oh, Paul's saying when I die, I get born of the free woman. It's above us, so that means it can't be now, it can't be here. And that's what religion loves to do. It loves to consistently push off heavenly charges given in Scripture till after we die. Take, take Matthew 6. Um, Jesus gives a parable that uh, you can store up earthly treasures that have no value, or you can store up heavenly treasures that have no value. Because our concept of heaven is it is being far away geographically or being after we die, our concept is those heavenly treasures are only available after death. I don't believe that's true. I believe every heavenly treasure I store up is available to me as soon as it's in my stored up bank account. But our, you can see already our brains automatically go to something stored up in heaven. It's only available when this happens, when I die. And so when we read these scriptures, anytime we read a scripture giving us anything about heaven, we automatically go to death. Hopefully, I've talked about it enough, but hopefully we have to realize, and I've said this a bunch, is that the only thing not accessible to us in, in the realm that we call heaven that isn't available now is a new body. The only heavenly thing unaccessible to us in this realm that won't be available to us till after we die is a new body. Except for me, the Lord told me this is exactly how I'm gonna look on new earth. Wouldn't that be awful? What if the Lord told you, however fat you were on earth at your fattest, when you come to new earth, you have to be that weight forever. You think you'd, you think you'd still serve Christ? I think I'd have to move to Buddhism or something. I'm not spending eternity this heavy, I'll tell you that. I'll do whatever it takes to move to be as tiny as I can before we, we, we move on to what's next. But it is, it is the real truth, I promise you. I know it doesn't sound like it because you have a lot going on in your life, but there's nothing accessible in heaven that you can't get to in this moment right now except for a new body. That's the only thing that you can't get to. But what happens is, and I call them micro expressions, every time we hear this message and it sinks a little deeper and it gets a little closer to our heart, it's true. But we get these little micro expressions of religion whenever we get back into scripture. And those micro expressions either give us something like shame, they give us something like doubt, or they teach us once again the reality that probably all this heavenly stuff, all this stuff of me living powerful is probably probably for after I die. It's probably for the next life when this isn't reality at all. And so when we think about this word above, we have to look at it correctly. A great way to look at it would be in um, uh, the Revelation uh, of John, the last, book of, uh, the last book of the Bible, Revelations. In, in, in Revelations chapter six, it says that John hears the phrase, come up here to me. Come up here to me, right? Anybody remember that? He comes up, the door opens, there's Jesus and the throne and angels and fireworks and rubies and beads and everything else up there. Remember that? So when we look at that scripture, we look at the, the statement, come up to me, we can look at it one or two ways, okay? So we can look at it as come up to me as far as geographically. He's up here, I'm down here. Or we can look at it like this, come up to me, I'm here, and Dan, you're right there. And all I need you to do is stand up and we will be eye to eye. There's two different ways of looking at it. We can look at it geographically, which if you look at the text and how it's laid out, it's not how it's written. 
Or we can look at it from the perspective of come up here means you come right where I am and we will be face to face. It's not about, it's not about a distance, it's about a veil. There's, there's something between us, so you come up to me. Right? And so when we think about heaven, when we think about the kingdom, we can't think geographically, we have to think personhood. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is not actually a geographical place, it's a person and his name is Jesus. Come up to me, right? Everybody getting it? Everyone's kind of looking at me a bit weird. Good? The same thing can be said about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you look at the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John all say the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. The book of Luke says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The reason Luke writes heaven instead of God is because he's dealing with most likely a group of people in Rome who are kind of grown up their whole lives listening and reading Plato. So he has to use language to describe them best. So we've often taken kingdom of heaven because our only concept of heaven is geographical. Our only concept of heaven is a different place. But uh, Matthew, Mark, and John actually get the revelation correctly and actually get the verbiage correctly. It's not the kingdom of heaven, it's the kingdom of God. It's a person, it's not a place. The kingdom of God is a person, not a place. We have to think once again personhood, not geographically. I, I, I go on that little bit of a soapbox to say when we think about the word above... We have to look at the word correctly because it's not a, a place above us that's only accessible with some type of death or third heaven encounter. When this word above in the Greek is actually ano, um, it's where we in the English get the word analog from. We get the word analog from this word and it actually more accurately describes a time more than it describes a place. It describes a time more than it describes a place. So if we were reading, uh, and this is a great, I mean, I use the passion, but um, I think this word is a bit wrong. So if we were to read Galatians 4, 26 more correctly, I think it would actually more read like this. In contrast, there is a heavenly Jerusalem before us. There is a heavenly Jerusalem that's actually before us. It's not a death thing. It's a, that it's a right there and there's a veil right here. I'm in the old Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem is right there. It's not above me, it's actually before me. And we are convincing ourselves and people are screaming from mountaintops and pulpits the only way to get to the new Jerusalem is through some type of death experience when the reality is the only reason most people are not living in the new Jerusalem is predominantly because we love just enough of the law to keep us back in the old one. We can't get to what's before us because we love what's behind us. It's Lot syndrome. It's his wife's syndrome, right? The constant look back. And so what happens is when we think this way and we can't get to the new Jerusalem, what happens is when we live in disappointment, we create theologies around it and we say, well, that must not be for now, it must be for later. But our disappointments can't create our theologies. 
Our disappointments can never create our theologies. That's how we got, um, my gosh, so many. I mean, I could go through a list. That's where half of Calvin's stuff comes in, but we won't, we won't get into Calvinism tonight. And so the reality is, is that when we think of it that way, we have to understand the kingdom of God correctly, that it is before us and it is available. In, in Luke, it gets very interesting because in the beginning of Luke, he starts to say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. And then in Luke 17, he changes the entire script where he says the kingdom of God is within. Oh, whoa, oh, oh, whoa, oh. whoa. What do you mean? He actually says it really, he really tries to spice it up. He says, the kingdom of God is inside some of you. Some of you, it's actually inside of right now. He begins the transitional place of at hand to inside of you. And you begin to ask yourselves, okay, well, is the kingdom of God at hand or is it inside of me? And the answer is, depends on who your mother is. Depends on who your mother is. Because there is a mother birthing people into slavery, which is known as Mount Sinai, and there's a mother birthing people into freedom, and that mother is known as Mount Zion. It's Sarah and Hagar. It's a, it's, it's a really interesting concept to imagine because it is the way, not only in which we access the kingdom of heaven, it is the way that Jesus accessed earth. If you, uh, I know it's not available on any, on, on the Bible apps, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna go to Galatians 4, uh, the beginning of Galatians 4 in the Mirror Translation Bible and read the first, um, I'll read the first, five verses uh, of, of Galatians chapter four in the mirror translation. Uh, it's fantastic. Listen to this. It says, infant heirs have no more say than a slave, even though they own everything. Infant heirs, as in heirs to the throne, right? Have no more say than a slave, even though they own everything. He would remain under domestic supervision and house rules until the date fixed by his father for his official graduation to the status of sonship. This is exactly how it was with us. We were kidnapped as if in infancy and confined to that state through the law. Here's where I want you to pay attention. But the day dawned, the most complete culmination of time, the son arrived, commissioned by the father. Ready? His legal passport to the planet was his mother's womb. And in a human body, exactly like ours, he lived his life subject to the same scrutiny of the law. Jesus is, Paul describes that Jesus' legal passport into humanity is through Mary's womb. His legal passport into this world is through Mary's womb. And your legal passport into Mount Zion is your mother's womb. Your legal passport into the new Jerusalem, which is Mount Zion, is through your mother's womb. We see the exact same thing, except one is earth and one is actually moving into the new Jerusalem. Everybody, everybody good? Perfect. Two people. Let's go. Praise God. And we're living, and there's a piece of you right now that's most likely in your heart saying, well, 
Mount Zion isn't my legal passport into heaven. It's Jesus and my faith in Jesus. It's my faith in Jesus as my Lord and Savior that gets me into heaven, you heretical loser. Hopefully none of you are saying that, but maybe, I don't know. And the reality is that is true. Your faith in Jesus is your access into heaven. The problem with getting that full access, though, is your self-effort in trying to help you get there. And that's Mount Sinai versus Mount Zion. Your full legal passport into the new Jerusalem, your full legal passport into your sonship and being who you're destined to be has nothing to do with Jesus. It has to do with your self-effort and trying to help get there. It's you coming to him every day with, look at all the good things I did. Did I do enough? If I go pray for that person, will they get healed? Or because I thought that person in the drive-thru was pretty, will I not? Because I'm already married. How does that work? Because I flipped someone off yesterday on my way to work, if I go to church Sunday, are you gonna send me to hell? So we're constantly producing, we're constantly producing our list and bringing it to the table when Jesus is saying that I've already taken care of everything. And so Jesus is our avenue into heaven, but the reality is our passport's being delayed, not because of our lack of faith in Jesus, but because of our faith in ourselves and our own self-effort to help get us there. Does it make sense? Let's do a couple older. And it's, it sounds scary, and to be honest, uh, to be 100% transparent with you, this type of message, these type of concepts, they predominantly scare the hell out of the church. They do. My sister just went, oh, I can't believe he said that. You can talk to my dad tomorrow if you have any, if, yeah, if you have any problems, just email my father, he'll deal with it tomorrow. These types of messages, yeah pass it off on him. These types of messages scare the church because they have no answers to pulling self-effort out of the process of salvation. It's why since the 1300s, they've been trying to get the woman caught in adultery out of the Bible. Since the 1300s, we've been battling back and forth, back and forth, because half of the original texts that we have have the woman caught in adultery and the other half don't. And our reality is it messes so much with our theology of thinking about the woman caught in adultery that we are trying to do everything we can to get it out of, of Scripture. Anybody know the story of the woman caught in adultery? She's thrown down. Jesus comes, gets in the middle. And I think oftentimes with that Scripture, we get so caught up in what was Jesus writing. And it says that Jesus stooped low and began to write, but I believe the true reason Jesus began to stoop low had nothing to do with what he was writing, but it's because down there was where her eyes were. Down there is where her eyes were. It's interesting, the, the definition, one of the definitions of grace is to actually stoop low to where someone is and bring them back up. And we have such a hard time with the scripture and this concept because there is nothing spoken by the woman. There's only Jesus getting down and saying, where are, where are the people condemning you? And neither do I condemn you, so go and sin no more. And that's not it for us. Where's the Romans road? 
Where's, where's the track that was passed out and, and the discussion of all the things that you did and the discussion of how crappy you were and how awful you were before Jesus and how much you're gonna need Jesus if you wanna go. And if you don't, you're gonna burn in hell one day. Where's all that? It's, it's nowhere to be found. Not only is it nowhere to be found, if you look at the text close enough, you realize what's the order of, of how Jesus says it. Does Jesus say you're not condemned and go and sin no more? Does Jesus say don't sin and I won't condemn you? Think about it. Does, does Jesus say first don't sin and you won't be condemned? Or does he say I don't condemn you, now go and sin no more? It's the other way. Jesus pronounces first to her, is anyone still here condemning you? No, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. When we live our lives, we've been told that the gospel is the opposite. Our entire lives, the gospel is, if you don't wanna be condemned, you better not sin. And the moment you sin, he's gonna come in there with a belt and whoop you. And you're condemned once again. And the problem with our sin life is we're focused on we're focused so much on the condemnation that's supposed to come if we sin instead of realizing he's called us not to sin anymore. We've actually flipped the script the wrong way. We grew up being told quit sinning and there'll be no condemnation. He said quit obsessing on condemnation and you'll quit sinning. Maybe, if, maybe just shockingly, maybe if you'll quit for 10 seconds focusing on how crappy you think you are and align your thoughts with who I think you are, maybe you won't be the crappy person that you think you are. I'm gonna throw a whole new concept at you. Put my lid back on. And I know that that sounds crazy, but it's not. What you're, what you're waiting on is not some aha moment of the struggle that you've had that you can finally get rid of it. What you're actually needing and waiting on is a passport. And that passport can only be found when you die to self-effort. I know it's scary to think about, but, but outside of your faith in Jesus, you don't play a role in your salvation. He did it. You don't get to play a role in it. He did it all. There's a, a really funny story, and I, I was telling, a, a, we were talking the other night, I told a group of guys this, there's an amazing story. This pastor gets to heaven, and he, uh, he gets to the gate, and there's an angel there, and he said, hey, he said, I'm, I'm here, and uh, I'm a pastor, and, and I want to know if, if, if I did enough to get, in, to get inside. And the angel goes, perfect. Well, it, it, it's based off of a point system, so let's see what all you did. So the guy says, well, I was a pastor. And he said, well, that's five points. He said, five points? How many points does it take to get in? He said, it takes 100. The pastor's like, oh, God. He said, well, I was married for 50 years. I never cheated on my wife one time. The angel says, awesome, that's another two points. You're up to seven. He's thinking, dear God. He said, well, my ministry led 10,000 people to Christ. How many points does that, does that get me to get in there? He said, that's another two points. So you're up to nine. And just as this guy is starting to get extremely frustrated at all the stuff he's doing not working and getting him there, behind him comes this dude with ripped up jeans, no shirt on, just kind of chilling. He's got a man bun. He walks by the angel. I know. I knew man bun would offend you. That's why I said it. He's got a, he's, he's got a man bun. He fist bumps the angel and walks right into heaven. And the guy goes, this, this pastor goes, how in the world did that guy get in there? How many points does he get? He said, oh, he just refuses to play this game. 
Yeah, yeah, I know. And the reality is we're waiting for the day when we can get there and present all the great things we did when the reality is he did it. He did it. Our self-effort being involved in our own salvation has to die before we can ever receive a passport to express ourselves fully in what we're allowed to be in. Amen? Awesome. Trying to... I, I came to the conclusion that since my team's not in the Super Bowl, I thought I'd keep us here for the entire Super Bowl as a form of protest <laughs> until, the, yeah, until the Patriots get their crap together. So glory to God. And so uh, <laughs> I want us to look at the idea of, of Isaac being weaned, the day Isaac is weaned. On the day Isaac is weaned, once again, we see Ishmael begin to mock Isaac. What does being weaned mean? Being weaned is the end of your self-effort and the beginning of actually believing. I mean actually believing wholeheartedly, not beautiful phrases, but actually believing that you are as righteous as God. That's what weaning day is, is actually believing you're as righteous as God. And I know you're thinking, how do you always get everything back to being righteous as God? Because it is the baseline. Go with me to Hebrews 5. If you have a Bible or a phone, flip there. If you've gone to James, you've gone too far. That joke's not funny anymore because nobody has real Bibles. So you just find it on your phone. All the fun old pastor jokes are leaving the church. It's a sad day. James 5.11 says this, We have much to say about this topic, although it is difficult to explain, because you have become too dull and sluggish to understand. For you should already be professors instructing others by now, but instead you need to be taught from the beginning the basics of God's prophetical orals, prophetic oracles. You're like children still needing milk and not yet ready to digest solid food. Say weaned. For every spiritual infant who lives on milk is not yet pierced by the revelation of righteousness. For every infant still not yet weaned, the purpose of their lack of weaning actually becomes, is actually because they've not yet been pierced by the revelation of righteousness. Now, some of you, uh, I, I wanted to correct this, some of you actually may have, you're unskilled in the revelation of righteousness. Does your Bible say that, unskilled? Um, I'm just going to let you know, unskilled, in my opinion, is a pretty, uh, pretty crap translation of that word. Uh, I think any Christian at any level uh, knows that you do not receive righteousness by your own skill. You can't be skilled in righteousness because you have no skill in it, right? Revelation and righteousness is only perceived through relationship with Jesus. It is the goodness of God that leads men to repentance, not our skills in discovering his goodness, Right? If we keep going on, we see it. Uh, verse 14 says, But solid food is for the mature whose spiritual senses perceive heavenly matters. Righteousness is something that is perceived, it's not something that we are skilled at getting to. 
It's not a skill. Witchcraft is a skill. It's why it's called a craft. Righteousness is not a skill. It's a free gift. But as long as we live in this idea of, of needing milk, of, of our lack of own weaning, we will constantly miss out on the idea that he did it all and he made us exactly who we're supposed to be. We've talked about the definition of righteousness, right? Even Strong's gets that one right, praise God. They get one right every now and then. Strong's Concordance got that one right. The definition of righteousness is not necessarily to be in right standing. The definition of righteousness is to be made as one ought to be. Exactly as God is God, you were you. The person you think you're gonna be when you die, you're that person, you just don't believe it yet. And that's what the revelation of righteousness is. And so we have to realize that the new Jerusalem is not something we're waiting for to die. It's right in front of us. And I, I'm telling you, if we can get to the place where we can have a celebration and have a weaning day as a family, we will move into the greatest revelation of our own sonship and daughtership, our greatest revelation of the revealing of the sons and daughters, because that's what the earth is waiting for. The earth isn't waiting for an escape plan. It doesn't need the rapture. What it needs is sons and daughters who believe in who they are. What our nations need is not a different president. What our nations need is not a better military tactic. What our nations need are men and women who believe they are sons and daughters of Yahweh and they change situations and they close down hospitals and they change cities and they change entire groups of people, not because they have some strong message, but because they radiate love. Because they radiate love. And so our lens has to change. I'm gonna go a little longer, so don't shoot me. And so the reality becomes we need a deep encounter with our new mother, Mount Zion. We need a deep encounter with our new mother. And we need to be birthed again with the, with the passport of being birthed into complete freedom. Isaac is the promised child, not Ishmael. Isaac is the promised child. And the reality is when we can realize who we're called to be, we'll move into what I was talking about, the greatest definition of who we are, which is love. Which is love. One of the, the worst things I think that a lot of English Bibles do is they translate, um, where's that found? It's in Galatians, isn't it? Is the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians? Isn't it Galatians 6? Fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5. Y'all are smart. Uh, the worst thing that I find the English Bible does is in Galatians 5, what it tries to do is break down nine fruits of the Spirit. When there isn't nine fruits of the Spirit, there's one. The fruit of the Spirit is love. If you look at the word in Greek, it never gives any type of plural nature to it. It doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit. It says the fruit of the Spirit is love. And what it does after that is it creates a breaking in Greek showing you what the expressions of the fruit of the Spirit being love are. Patience, kindness, long-suffering, all these things. We see the same thing in 1 Corinthians 13 when it's describing once again what love is. Love is patient, love is kind, love is long-suffering, it does not boast. The fruit of the Spirit, there's not nine detailed things, it's one and it's love. 
And the worst thing about how we've translated predominantly the fruit of the Spirit is when we get to the word self-control. We've always been taught, and I was taught as a kid, like there's nine fruits of the Spirit. One of them is self-control. And so you better watch it. You, if you freaking sin, if you think about anything, it's over for you. So you, need, you better grab your, grab your Bible and you better do it on your own because it's about you. It's self-control. If you look in, and I, I'm, I'm not being, I'm not boasting in the numbers when I say this. If you look at any Greek or any Aramaic lexicon, the word there that they translate self-control, you cannot actually put the word self in it. You can't, you can't put the word self in it. The word, translate, word translates predominantly as lordship or spirit strength. And we've translated our whole lives as self-control. When the fruit of the Spirit is not, has nothing to do with you, the fruit of the Spirit has everything to do about the Spirit. And yourself is not included in your salvation. It's Spirit strength. And so when we receive love, we receive a greater understanding that it's not about me, it's about Him. But because it was about Him, it becomes about me. And we lose our condemnation. Let's go ahead and stand. If you don't, we'll be here for another two hours. When we realize, when we realize that the word is not self-control, it's spirit strength, I believe we lose a piece of our perverted relationship with the Holy Spirit because predominantly a lot of us have a relationship with the Holy Spirit that he's our taboo buzzer whenever we do something bad. The Holy Spirit is that thing inside of us that goes, eh, wrong, eh, no, eh, you're a pervert, eh, you're angry, eh, quit saying that. When that really isn't the role of the Spirit at all, the actual role of the Spirit is to reveal all truth. And the greatest truth the Spirit can reveal is who you actually are. The greatest truth the Spirit can reveal is actually who you are. And we've, been spent, we've spent our entire lives being taught and being shamed into this concept that you better make the mark. You better hit the mark. You better hit the mark. But the reality is we can't change our stance to believe that we can actually hit the mark. Because we're taught that our entire lives, all we'll do is miss the mark. Our entire lives we're being taught, you're, you're never gonna measure up, but you better hope he likes you enough better hope you did enough. And we're missing out on being birthed into the greatest thing that ever happened. And, and, and luckily, I'm just young enough that if none of you get it, one time when you're all gone, I'll tell all your sons and daughters about it. And maybe they'll get it. Or maybe my kid will tell your great-grandchildren about it and maybe they'll get it. But I do believe there's an opportunity for us to, to be birthed into the Spirit, to be birthed out of Mount Zion and lose our desire and our need for our own checklist. I think we've all been cut short a bit in the process. And I think predominantly what that's come from is our lack of understanding the good character of the Father. We need a better understanding of how good God is, how good our Father is. There's, um, there's a, a portion of Matthew. Jesus. 
There's a portion of Matthew, uh, in the beginning of Matthew 24, Jesus, the disciples asked Jesus, you know, when will you come back? What will that time look like? And Jesus starts going through all these apocalyptic things and then he transitions into Matthew 25 where he gives a few parables um, to almost talk about the state of how people will be in the time leading up to his return. And I don't have time to get into the one on the, on, on the 10 lamps. Uh, we'll talk about that at a different time. But he ends with two parables. First is, is the parable of the talents. And next is, is the parable of the judgments. I, I'm just gonna read the end of the parable of the talents because most of us know that one was given one, one was given or five and 10 and 20, depending on your Bible. And one sowed and one didn't. But there's a very interesting place here. In 24, it says, then the one who had been entrusted with 1,000 gold coins came to his master and said, look, sir, I know that you are a hard man to please and you're a shrewd and ruthless businessman who grows rich on the backs of others. I was afraid of you, so I went and hid your money and buried it in the ground, but here it is, take it, it's yours. But his master said to him, you're untrustworthy and a lazy servant. If you knew I was shrewd and ruthless businessman, a rude and ruthless businessman who always makes a profit, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? Then I would have received it all back with interest when I returned. But because you were unfaithful, I'll take the thousand gold coins and I'll split it between the other two. This is, a, this is very interesting because if you notice the person given 5,000 and the person given 10,000 don't speak to the master as having a bad character, only the one with 1,000. And because of how the guy with 1,000 talents actually perceived the master, it's what led him into fear to not actually invest it at all. And I believe what Jesus is trying to show us is that, is that if you perceive the father as, as angry, if you perceive the father as a shrewd businessman, you won't be able to invest what he's given you. And the master doesn't, doesn't condemn the servant first. After the servant tells the master who he thinks his character is, he acts in that character. And, and the reality is so many of us are wanting to live in the, the revelation of righteousness, but our character is viewed as God as the law. And so we can't see a father because we always see a judge. We can't ever see a father because all we see is a judge. The same thing happens in the next parable. It's the parable of the kingdom family. And, and Jesus talks about, he says, you know, that there'll be a day when you come up and, and I'll say, well, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me a drink. When I was cold, you didn't clothe me. And they say, we never saw you. You were never hungry. You were never thirsty. You were never cold. He said, well, when you saw one of my little ones, you were doing it to me. It's this revelation of, don't you understand that we are all one kingdom family? And don't you understand that you were designed to be made just like me? And if you were designed to be made just like me, then anytime you do something to someone in a kingdom family, you're doing it to me. Jesus ends with these two parables telling and warning his disciples about the end times. And it seems like he ends with two things. 
Don't forget kingdom family and don't misperceive my father's character. Don't misperceive my father's character. Because oftentimes we'll build our own punishment system based off how we view the father. And the reality is, and I'm probably gonna keep talking about this for a couple of weeks, but it's, it's, there's going to have to come a day as a family that we move into weaning day. We're going to have to be weaned off of our own self-effort in what we're doing. We're going to have to trust the process and trust the promise and realize that we're taking the hard road and the long road to get to the place of complete freedom. But I promise that when you get there, and you meet someone not saved and they ask about how to get to heaven, you tell them, come to my house because that's where it is. And I'll show you from there. Come to my house, that's where it is. Do you wanna know what heaven's like? Come, come to my house, come get coffee with me. Because when I enter a coffee shop, what you think you're waiting for to die, I live in. That last song tonight, it's one of my favorite songs. Um, hymn of heaven, it says how, it opens up with how I long to breathe the air of heaven. The air of heaven is not geographically far away, it's a veil away. Breathing the air of heaven can be as easily from going like this to going like this. And that's what we have to move into as a family, amen? I'm gonna pray. Um, close your eyes really fast. Um, call the altar team up. And if, if you need prayer for anything or, or have anything going on that you'd like to receive ministry for, uh, they're here and, and available. But I'm, I'm gonna pray. Father, we just thank you. We thank you that you are, are moving on our behalf, that you have decided to dismantle the mountain of Sinai and you are moving children to being born of the free woman that you are moving children to being born into freedom, that we are now reigning with you on Mount Zion. Father, wrap us in beloved identity. Wrap us in the righteousness of God. Bring us to the revelation of not who you're trying to make us, but who we are because of you. We worship you in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Awesome, love you guys.